It's a joy to be part of uh, this particular uh, series and to contribute. I've watched along online, and so to be here for number three in the series is, is terrific. Um, just before we left to live in the U.S. in uh, September, uh, the uh, Australian government released the latest census figures, which felt like a real loss for Christianity in my country. Uh, we've now dipped for the first time since the founding of Australia to have the number of people claiming to be some kind of Christian is a minority in the country. Uh, when I first started coming to Ada in 2011, we were still 61% identifying in some way as Christian. Now, we're down to 44%. And the media had a frenzy. Ah, oh, we're a minority now. We shouldn't be giving Christianity any privileges, and so on. And just six weeks ago, I was in the UK, where their government announced very similar census results. Now, uh, the number of people identifying as Christians uh, has dipped from 60% down to 46%. And they were making the same point. Now Christians are a minority in the UK. Therefore, they shouldn't have any of the privileges. And it felt like a real loss to British Christianity. And interestingly, on your current figures, America, you're just 10 years behind. In 2011, when I first started coming here, 78% of uh, Americans claimed to be Christian of some sort. I mean, we can all quibble about whether they're real Christians or whatever. But the thing is, that has dropped to 63%. Basically, where Australia was 10 years ago. So maybe 10 years from now, America, the greatest Christian nation on earth, will be a minority Christian nation. Maybe. The Washington Post is already getting its headlines ready, right? At the ready, starting up the engines. So I don't know if you're feeling like Christianity's losing. Maybe in your personal life, amongst your friends and family, Christianity's losing. But whatever sense of loss you feel, I want to suggest that it's nothing compared to the sense of Christian loss that was experienced by the Christians to whom 1 Peter was written. 1 Peter, the first letter of the Apostle Peter, the fisherman follower of Jesus, was written to what we now call Turkey. And we know quite a lot about what was happening in Turkey. And uh, the Apostle Peter himself says that they were experiencing a fiery ordeal, that the Christian communities, the churches throughout this region, particularly up in Pontus and Bithynia in the, the north of Turkey there, were experiencing a fiery ordeal. And we have chilling evidence from 30 to 40 years after the Apostle Peter of just how bad things got in just this neck of the woods. We have a letter from the governor of this exact region. His name is Pliny the Younger. And he is persecuting Christians and killing Christians. And we have a surviving letter the governor wrote to the emperor Trajan. Listen to this. Listen to what Christians in this region were experiencing. 
I dismissed any who denied that they were Christians when they had repeated after me a formula calling upon our gods and made offerings of wine and incense to your statue, O emperor, and furthermore had reviled the name of Christ. None of which things I understand any genuine Christian can be induced to do. I asked them in person if they are Christians, and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time with a warning of the punishments awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of their admission, I am convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. Our letter from the Apostle Peter was written to this exact region in the dawn of this growing persecution that blossomed into an incredible catastrophe. The sense of loss amongst the Christians must have been palpable. I bet the temptation for Christians in these regions was either to lash back out or to run away and hide. They're the temptations, right? And maybe you're feeling the same. Maybe you're feeling like lashing out against a secularizing America. Or maybe you feel like running away and hiding under the drum kit. But Peter has some advice. Except it's not really advice when it comes from an apostle. It's the word of the Lord to us. He calls on us to have a very different approach. He calls on us to have a cheerful confidence to enter the fray, to enter the fight, and a cheerful humility to lose well when we must. After all, as I'll point out, often losses are wins in disguise for the followers of the crucified and risen Lord. So let me take each of these in turn, beginning with the cheerful confidence to enter into the fray. The passage you've been reflecting on, 1 Peter 3, is fantastic. Listen to this confidence he calls upon us to have. Uh, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. For anyone who was tempted to run away and hide because it looked like Christianity was losing, Peter says, no way, jump in, step up, speak up. Cheerful confidence. There are a few things I love about this. Uh, The first is the challenge. Um, Verse 13 states a generally true principle, not an always true principle, a generally true principle. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? See, normally when the Christian life is lived by the individual or by the Christian community in a city, it wins favor. It blesses people. It points to Christ. 
We know this was true of our Lord's own life. In Luke chapter 2, we're told that Jesus himself grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor, not just with God, but with man, with human beings. And in Acts 2.47, we learn that the church is described as praising God, and look at this, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So my point is, under normal circumstances, who is going to harm you if you're doing good? If the Christian community is doing good, a general principle is you'll win favor for the Lord and for the Christian community. And, And so if we're insulted as Christians... If we're mocked in public for Christians, our first thought should not be, oh, we're being persecuted. No, it should be, am I doing good? Or am I being a jerk? I know this from personal experience. I remember when I was first a Christian, as a zealous 16, 17-year-old, I was so zealous that I would spend Saturday mornings, which I was meant to be doing household chores, Um, praying and reading my Bible. Very convenient. I was very spiritual Saturday mornings. And I'd be kneeling by my bed, praying and reading. And I remember once, I was in a a household that was not Christian. I was the only Christian in the household. And my mum yelled out to me, my turn, John, your turn to rake the leaves out the front of the house. So I yelled out, I'm doing something really important. She yelled back, rake the leaves. No, I'm doing something really important. Then I heard her walk down the hallway, burst open the door, see me on my knees, praying and reading my Bible. She was disgusted, yelled at me, and stormed out of the room. And I remember thinking, I'm being persecuted, just like Jesus said, persecuted for righteousness. (laughs) No, no, no. I was being persecuted for being an idiot. And that's a very different thing. Had I been doing the good that I should have been doing, the chores, I would have won favor instead of mum's scorn. Friends, if we're criticized by the world, don't instinctively think it's their fault. It might be because we're just being obnoxious and smug and hypocritical. Might be. Then again, I love Peter's realism realism in the very next line, okay? He, He adds immediately in verse 14, but, okay, but, even if you should suffer for what is right. He knows that sometimes you do. You are blessed. Drawing straight from the Sermon on the Mount there, isn't he? Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. Sometimes our best efforts to follow Jesus at home, at university, college, business, amongst friends, at the cafe, blow up in our face. And we do just have to be ready for the fact that sometimes we'll suffer for what is right. Not just because we've been hypocrites or anything. Um, In fact, relatively recently, I was um, searching online for an article I vaguely remember from a couple of years ago in the the public media in Australia that was um, pretty complimentary about some of the public Christian work I was doing in Australia. I mean, it's quite narcissistic that I was looking for, for that article, I, I, I agree. Um, but actually, as I was Googling for that article, a very different article popped up that I had missed from a couple of years ago from another media outlet pouring scorn on me 
as a bigot and a lightweight. I was like, that's unfair. Here's the thing. If I hadn't been at that very time studying the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of Jesus from which Peter draws so much in this letter, I would have written straight to the journalist, a couple of years too late, to complain of unfair treatment. But instead, you know what? As I read that article, that I'm a lightweight bigot, I actually felt a peace come over me. It was weird. So un-me. I felt blessed. I was reminded of this same sort of thing that the apostle says. Sometimes our best efforts for Christ blow up in our faces and you just got to say, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Maybe you're feeling that right now and you need to hear the encouragement. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear. The third thing I love about this, these lines is the Peter's theology. Um, he doesn't just say, toughen up. Because you can't. You know, if you're really frightened of something that's real, you can't just say, you know, don't be scared. Because right? if there's something scary, you can be scared. And Peter doesn't do this. What he does is he gives the best reason imaginable, the best way forward imaginable for not being frightened. Look what he says. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Here it is. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Huh. Think about this. He's saying, don't fear the Roman Empire and its officials that are pressuring you. No, Christ is the true emperor. Revere Christ as Lord. Lord is the word kurios. And it's interesting because um, in Greek, the way you referred to the emperor was kurios. They would say, Kaiser, Estin, kurios, Caesar is Lord. And Peter says, mm -mm. <laughs> revere Christ as kurios. But actually, Peter does way more than that, way more than that. He does something that's worth zeroing in on because I'm sure it's deliberate and I think it's beautiful. Peter has reworked an Old Testament passage that was about the Lord God and he's applied it to Jesus. There it is on the screen. Isaiah 8, 12 says, do not fear what they fear, do not dread it. You can see how those words have been lifted and put into Peter's letter, uh, do not fear. But then notice the words, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. That is literally, in the original language, the Lord is the one you are to sanctify or set apart. And that is exactly what Peter says in the original Greek. He says, set apart or sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. So it's super clear Peter is drawing on Isaiah 8, 12. Now, some of you who have older translations than the NIV, like the King James or the uh, American Standard Bible, they say, set apart Christ as Lord or sanctify Christ as Lord. It's a more literal translation. But my point is this. Peter has taken an Old Testament passage that applied to the Lord God of the universe and said this now refers to Jesus. Jesus is not just Caesar. Mm -mm. 
He is the Lord God. This is the highest possible Christology you could imagine. And why is it important to see this? When we know who the true Lord is, we'll have a little more confidence. We will fear less the lesser gods of our day, the talk show hosts, the politicians, the academics, the journalists, the grumpy atheist uncle at Thanksgiving and Christmas. They don't rule heaven and earth, Jesus does. He is the Lord. And as a result, we will be ready to speak up for Jesus if we know he's the true Lord. And that's exactly what Peter says in this line. Um, the NIV turns one sentence into two. So I've turned it back into one sentence for you there to see what Peter literally says. In, in Greek, translated into English, it literally says, in your hearts revere or set apart Christ as Lord, comma, always being prepared to give an answer to everyone. Do you see the logic? There is an intimate connection between the degree to which you are able to revere Jesus and the degree to which you will be willing to step up and enter into the fray and give an answer to everyone. If you know he rules every room, you'll be able to speak up for him in every room. See, your bosses at work don't run heaven and earth. They don't own the room. The talk show hosts, yes, they sound articulate and loud and intelligent, but they don't own the room, Jesus does. Whatever room you find yourself in, remind yourself who is the Lord in that moment. And when you do, you'll be able to be the best version of yourself. I don't mean you'll suddenly transform into Jeff Mannion or Tim Keller. You'll just be the best you. You'll be the you that won't run and hide. You'll be the you that will just step up and say whatever you can on behalf of the faith. Because you're not scared. You know who owns the room. And because Jesus owns the room, we must never underestimate the power of the briefest thing we might say on behalf of Jesus to our grumpy atheist uncle, or at work, or in the media, or at the cafe amongst friends when they're criticizing Christianity. Never underestimate just the little tiny thing you can say. I'm sure I've told you before that my own process of conversion started with a simple answer from my school teacher when I was 16 years of age, Mrs. Glenda Weldon. She ended up sharing the faith with me and a whole bunch of others and we all became Christians and three of us became ministers, pastors, so she had a massive effect, but you know where it began? I went up to her after class one day in the hallway, and I said, uh, Mrs. Weldon, I know you're into God and all that sort of stuff. Um, what do you think God thinks of me? I don't know why I asked that. And she said, oh, John, God, he sees everything you've done, said, and even thought. And then she paused to let me sort of ponder that. And I remember going, oh man, that's bad. <laughs> Everything I've done, said, and thought. And then she said, but you know what? He loves you even still. 
I thanked her, I shot off into the playground, I tried to get those words out of my head. God sees everything I've done, said, and thought, but he loves me even still. But I couldn't. And humanly speaking, that like 20-second reply was the thing that drew me to want to know more about Christianity. The thought that God knew me through and through but loved me nonetheless just stayed with me so that I eventually investigated the Christian faith and became a Christian. My, my point is never underestimate the power of even the briefest thing you might say in public for Jesus. Because he is Lord, great things can happen. That's the cheerful confidence to step into the fray. But right alongside that, Peter urges a cheerful humility to lose well if we must. Because for the Christian, sometimes losing is winning in disguise. And I want to explain what I mean by that. The theme of being a good loser actually began in the paragraphs before this. And this is the passage uh, that Jeff focused on in the first two weeks. Especially last week, he focused on those lines up there that are amazing. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called. That's the ultimate definition of the good loser. Someone insults you for the faith and you just want to bless them back. Huh. If you didn't hear Jeff's message from last week, please dig it out. It was fantastic. But this theme of being a good loser spills into the passage we're reflecting on, where Peter says, suffer for what is right. Where he says, when you give an answer, do it with gentleness and respect. Don't be a jerk. And he says, you should do this, gentleness and respect, even when they're speaking maliciously against you, when they're slandering you. Gentleness and respect. That's the good loser. That's the way of Jesus. A few months ago in Melbourne, Australia, uh, a pastor friend of mine named Guy Mason had a very public opportunity to lose well. And boy, did he lose. Um, a member of his uh, congregation in Melbourne is one of Australia's most prominent businessmen, Andrew Thorburn. And Andrew Thorburn sits on the board the elder board of my mate's church. Fine. But Andrew Thorburn was um, given the role of the chief executive of Essendon Football Club. Now, I know you've never heard of Essendon Football Club, just as I had never heard Green Bay Packers in 2011. But they are a big, prestigious football team, Australian rules football team. It's like saying Andrew Thorburn was given the gig of the chief executive of the Lions, okay, which is apparently also a football club. And it was big news. One day later, he was forced to resign. You know why? Because journalists dug up that he was an abortive elder member of my mate, Guy Mason's church. And that church was a Bible-believing church. It taught classical views on all sorts of thorny ethical issues, including the nature of marriage. And boom, the media uproar was huge. Andrew Thorburn first to, forced to resign, and so began a week where Guy Mason, my pastor mate, had to front up to the media and just get whacked around the head 
he texted me and he said, um, do you reckon I should lean in to the media or run away? <laughs> and he actually asked, should I go on Sunrise, which is the equivalent of Good Morning America, okay, a national morning uh, show. And I said, yeah, absolutely you should do it. You know, jump into the fray, woohoo, lose well, and all that sort of stuff. Well, he did. And boy, did he lose. He was smacked around the head on that morning show. But you know what? Guy kept his cool. He did exactly what Peter says there in chapter 3, 14 to 16. He suffered for what is right. He gave an answer. He remained gentle and respectful. Have a look at the text again. Suffered for what is right. He revered Christ as Lord. Gentle and respectful. Even though he faced malicious talk. See, Guy knew that the Lord himself had suffered and was glorified. So it's cool. It's cool. Which is exactly what Peter says at the very end of the passage we're reflecting on. In verse 17 forward, he says, For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but look at this, but made alive in the spirit. Huh. We follow the crucified and risen, glorified Lord. Let me put it like this. We are the death and resurrection people, are we not? That's our gospel. But what I'm saying is even more than that. It's also our mode of engagement with the world. We are the death and resurrection people. We are the people who happily get crucified. Knowing that resurrection follows. Often our losses are wins in disguise. Um, you know, there's evidence from Pliny's letter. Uh, if we just jump forward. Pliny's letter to Trajan, uh, that despite the hostility that the Christians were facing in Pontus and Bithynia, they were growing astronomically. Listen to what part of the letter says. The question seems to me to be worthy of your consideration. This is the governor writing to Emperor Trajan. Especially in view of the number of persons endangered, because he's killing so many Christians. For a great many individuals of every age and class, both men and women, are being brought to trial, and this is likely to continue. It is not only in the towns, but the villages and rural districts too, which are infected through contact with this wretched cult. Pliny doesn't like Christianity. You're picking up that vibe? But he's complaining to the emperor, they keep on growing. They're everywhere. I love this. Because 1 Peter was written like 30 years earlier. And, and we can surmise that those Christians who received 1 Peter didn't go and hide away under the drum kit. They went out, they stepped up, they were confident, and they lost well, but their losing was winning. People were becoming Christians. 
This is tiny by comparison, but I had my own minor controversy in public back in 2015. One of my books, A Sneaking Suspicion, had been a textbook in schools for like a decade before that, used in all sorts of contexts, because it, it deals with issues like sex and beauty and anxiety and suffering and all sorts of issues. And then in 2015, a very anti-Christian group got together and produced a report slamming my book as dangerous and presented that report to the government. Why was it dangerous? Because chapter one about sex assumes, not in a pushy way, but assumes classical views of sex. And they said, this is dangerous to kids. And the government announced the book was banned from schools. I want to tell you, that was really painful. And I had to do some radio interviews and TV interviews where I had to try, in a sense, defend myself, but what can you do when the government bans your book? It was a loss. But you know what? After one of my radio interviews with the national broadcaster, I got a call like five, ten minutes later from the education secretary. A number I didn't know, I just went, hello? The education secretary said, oh, I just listened to your ABC interview. Um, thanks, thanks for not slamming us. I wonder if you'd like to come into my offices and we can talk about this matter. So I went in. He mainly wanted to talk about Jesus. We parked the issue of my banned book. I had five separate meetings with the secretary for education where we talked about Jesus. What seemed like a public loss was actually a beautiful win for the opportunity to share Jesus Christ with someone. Now, I can happily report he overturned the ban a month later and there's nothing like a banning of a book to increase sales, so it all turned out really, <laughs> really, really peachy. But, but that's, that's not the, that's not, like even if that hadn't happened, that's not the win I'm talking about. <laughs> I got to have really meaningful conversations. Sometimes personal and public losses turn out to be wins. We're the death and resurrection people, right? Our gospel calls forth from us confidence to enter the fray and humility to lose well because we know sometimes losing is winning in disguise. We know the Father of heaven and earth can take our painful losses and turn them into something fantastic. And so I return and end on something I said earlier. Never underestimate the power of even the briefest thing you might say in public about Jesus. For me as a father, my best example is my daughter Sophie. 
This is a shot of us just at Christmas time. The two older kids came and joined us, and there's Sophie in the foreground, and my naughty Josie about to throw a snowball at us. Just, there are photos after this that weren't as happy. <laughs> but my Sophie had some wayward years, I must say. Yeah, through her late teenage years, she was a little bit of a wild child. Um, almost like she had a foot in Christianity, which she was able to do because she's raised in a very Christian home and a, and a foot firmly planted in the world. And part of this wayward period was spent here in America where she was uh, a student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm not blaming you guys for this, but <coughs> she uh, really lived the college life there. I, I didn't want to know the details. But after she came back from six months in Wisconsin, came back to Sydney, about a month later, she injured herself really quite badly, and she was bedridden for nearly two months. And she got a visit during that two months from lots of friends, but one of them was a Christian friend who said just the simplest thing that brought my beautiful Sophie back to the Lord with such zeal. But you've got to hear it from Sophie's own lips. Less than a month after I returned from overseas, I um, was doing some backyard gymnastics at a party after a few too many vodka lime sodas, and I broke my ankle. Um, and it wasn't an ordinary break either. It was like one of those ones where the bone comes out of the skin, and they called it an open flesh dislocation. So that's like probably too much information, but it's helpful to understand that I was in and out of hospital with complications for four weeks. Like, I didn't use crutches for six weeks. Um, it wasn't fun, and I was forced to realise that I was stoppable. Um, and just like that, the world had nothing to offer me. And the inner turmoil returns. Um, so, being on bed rest and having way too much time to myself, I came to a few realisations. Um, one, was that a season of wandering is not a season if it lasts six years. Two, that you can't be lukewarm about something that claims to be a matter of life or death. And three, was that it was time for me to choose God wholly or walk away wholly. Um, and like spookily soon after making that decision, I got this text from this girl I went to school with. Um, she was a Christian, um, still is. Um, and she, she's not someone I'd caught up with in three years. Um, and she sent me this message saying, so I was so sorry to hear about your ankle. Like, would it be okay if I came and visited you? Um, and I remember thinking, this is pretty random, but like, sure. Um, and so Eloise is her name. She came over. Um, and something that's probably important to note is that I was on a lot of heavy pain medication at this point. Um, so Eloise comes over and so begins what I think was a very opioid-induced conversation where I begin telling Eloise that I'm too Christian for the people I get along with um, and I'm not Christian enough for the church. Um, and I told her that my whole life I've felt like I have one foot in each world. Um, and Eloise began to laugh, like, at me. Um, and she proceeded to say something that changed my life, like, no exaggeration. Um, she said, 
will soap, one foot is obviously broken. And like, it might have been the endone, but I think it was the Holy Spirit because something came over me in that moment. And like, like I had spent my whole life thinking that my testimony would be ordinary because it would have to begin with, um, I grew up in a Christian family, um, when really my relationship with God hadn't begun yet. And it began that day. God bless Eloise. I've never even met the girl. Now, I know some of you are in the painful situation of still waiting for your kids to have an experience of Christ. I know this can cause great sadness. I know some of you have family and friends you wish would know Christ. I know all of you are looking at your culture and it's de-Christianization and your lament is deep. But I want to say, because Christ is Lord, we can have the confidence to enter the fray. Because Christ is Lord, we can afford to lose sometimes, knowing that it may be a win. And because Christ is Lord, we must never underestimate even the briefest thing we might say in public on behalf of Jesus, because he can take that and do extraordinary things. So Lord, will you please bless us, the Ada Church family, those in this building, those at East Paris, Knapp Street, those watching online, Will you bless us? Will you fill us with your spirit? Will you give us opportunities? Above all, though, will you give us a fresh vision of Jesus' majesty as the crucified and risen one, that we might step up, that we might lose well when necessary, that we might contribute to the salvation of our loved ones and to this world. Even in the smallest way, Lord, use our meager efforts for your glory and the good of the world. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Bye-bye.